Welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey everybody, welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, let's get to it. Just a few housekeeping items that we usually handle at the outset of every episode. We got a great response from our first part in this series about John Monterano, the hitman of choice, I guess, for the Winter Hill Gang. Man, it's a bloody story. I think I gave you the history of John Monterano and his parents, and somebody had written into the show asking why he wasn't a made man of La Cosa Nostra. The thing was, you have to be full-blooded Italian, and... La Costa Nostra has to be able to trace your roots back to Italy. And John Monterano's mom was Irish, so he wasn't eligible for membership. Don't know if he would have took it if he could, but he did know a lot of Italian gangsters. And to be quite frank, one of the reasons that Winter Hill lasted so long was because of John Monterano. In town, as they called the Boston faction of La Casa Nostra was simply afraid of John Matarano. He wasn't a bully, a swaggering bully like a lot of gangsters were, but as they said, he was very capable, and that meant he'd kill you. So they didn't move against Winter Hill because of John Matarano. If you killed John Matarano's partners, he was coming for you. He would have come right to the office, you know, on Prince Street for the Angelos, I think. So they were afraid to cross John Monterano and went to hell. They were a bunch of maniacal killers, make no mistake. And John Monterano led the hit parade there. But a really good response to the first episode. And I just wanted to let everybody know I am catching up on emails. Last week, I spent the week in the Orleans area of Cape Cod. And... I got to thinking, man, I do give the metropolitan Boston area a ration of crap most weeks. But man, is it beautiful down there? I had a couple great days, went out on a friend's boat. Man, it is beautiful up here. You see what happens in New England is July and August on Cape Cod make you forget about January and February in Boston. And then by the time it rolls around again, you remember exactly why you want to get the hell out, right? Also, guys, I got a lot of emails on the Gilgo Beach case and the podcast I recommended last week and previously during the podcast. That podcast is named Lisk, L-I-S-K. And I think I downloaded mine from Apple, but it's everywhere. It's a pretty popular pod. So check that out. It takes you right from the beginning, not up to the arrest of this guy, you know, in the last few weeks, but it gives you a hell of a background. And something that is just so insane about this case is police corruption tainted this serial homicide case because 
one of the chiefs, I believe it was like 2011, man, he was just heinously corrupt and he didn't want the FBI to assist in this case. He didn't want the FBI to be sniffing around his station. That guy ultimately went to jail, as did a local judge or district attorney. Check out the pod and let me know if I'm on the right track remembering that. But that's my remembrance of it, my memory of it. And it's an excellent podcast. But there are several reasons why this case hadn't been solved, and that's chief among them. And I've been following this case in the New York Post. They seem to have the best coverage on it. And I've read that they've got a boatload of evidence, including DNA, against this guy. They'd been watching him for a year, and at a certain point, they picked up some pizza crust he had eaten, believed or not, gotten some DNA off that, which matched one of the bodies. And I believe shortly after that, they make the pinch. But what a maniac. And that'll be an interesting case looking at it going forward. Also, guys, on the Karen Reed murder trial, the prosecution has handed over to the defense a boatload of discovery, which the defense had been asking for for 18 months now. And I think this was ahead of the motion to compel. So I think filing a motion to compel discovery was probably the right thing to do in this case, at least spurred action. I don't think the judge had ruled on that yet, but the prosecution saw that was likely going to happen and they'd have to produce the documents anyway. So they did that, I think, at the end of last week. I urge you all to check in on the Turtle Boy series. Just Google TB News and it'll come up. I think he's up to 74 or 75 entries on this case. And during my interview with Aiden Kearney of Turtle Boy News, Turtle Boy himself, I guess you could say, he said something to me that has stuck with me. He said to me, Barry, you still believe in institutions, meaning the institution of the court. You know, I guess you could rip that all the way through to the FBI and all that. And because it does take a lot for me to believe that a prosecutor, you think they're on the side of the righteous, on the side of the victim, you wouldn't think or you can't really get to think that they'd do something so nefarious here as to cover up the murder of a Boston police officer and not do such an intentionally crappy investigation, not separating the witnesses. The owner of the home, another Boston cop, doesn't even look out the window, doesn't come out, and there's a dead Boston cop on your lawn. The case has got to be one of the craziest I've ever come across. But Turtle Boy is right. I still believed in institutions. And I guess that's where my bias lies, and I've got to be cognizant of it, right? Strange how we have to do that here in the 21st century, right? All right, guys, so I think last week I left you off with John Moderano. John Moderano was loving the nightlife, and he was progressively becoming more of a gangster. He had gotten married to a high school sweetheart, you know, a few years after high school. But that coincided with Johnny's rise in the criminal underworld. and. 
just a few months later, he just wasn't coming home anymore. And he left his wife and kids, and he was basically carousing full time. I believe he opened a club called the Basin Street South, and it was kind of like a jazz club. And everybody cries poor mouth that's in the underworld, right? John Matarano from the outset had a pretty good life, not wanting for much. Each step of the way, private school, you know, he later graduated from public school, but anything John Monterano really wanted was the nightlife, the city life, the outlaw life, really. So John Monterano, guys, made a decision at age 24 he'd never get free from, and man, it's just a horrible chain of events afterwards. I don't know how he felt about it as he was doing it, but it's some diabolical stuff. So let me tell you about John Matarano's first murder. If you remember in the first episode, I told you about Luigi's, and that was the Matarano place. It was owned by Andy Matarano, John's father, but John, I think, had a piece of it as well. And they had a legitimate restaurant. It was on Washington Street in Boston what would now become the combat zone years later. So I believe it started in the early 50s, but this is how Luigi's would end. So the Boston Police Department in those days was almost 100% on the take. They were corrupted by local gangsters, whether they be Winter Hill Mafia or some unaffiliated group, but they were corrupt. And Luigi's paid off, and they paid off pretty well to the captain of District 4, the lieutenant. And I guess the cops in the district would get taken care of around Christmas time. Whitey Bulger was famous for saying, Christmas is for kids and cops. And I think that was true in this regard. But every once in a while, the cops had to make a show of it. And once in a bit, I guess somebody would take a pinch. But at the time... John Matarano was buying stolen furs, and he was storing them in Luigi's. And if you wanted a fur, you could go up there and get one from John and whomever else was working. But Luigi's was a legitimate restaurant during the daytime hours, you know, until about 1 a.m. And then upstairs, there was like the gangster's lounge from 1 a.m. to about 4 a.m., they hosted Boston's Underworld. There was gambling up there and, you know, just an after-hours club. Like I had said previously, there was a million of them in the city, but this one was especially popular. So cash was flowing in, but John was keeping the stolen furs there and some detective or whatever ends up getting a search warrant for Luigi's and the gang didn't know about it, and it was executed. So the cops go up to the second floor of Luigi's looking for the furs. I don't think they found the furs, but they did find a body, guys. And this really had nothing to do with John Matarano, but it would send his life in an entirely different direction. There was a woman there, a lady of the evening, named Margaret Margie Sylvester. And she had been there one night when John wasn't present, but I believe his brother Jim was. And there was also other gangsters in the establishment at that time. 
And Margie was a good friend of Andy Matarano's going way back. And she was known to everybody and well-liked. But the cops, when they go for this raid, find Margie Sylvester stabbed and rolled up in a rug. And things start to go south. There's a homicide. And that's difficult to cover up because they find this woman in front of other cops, you know, so they had to do the right thing or at least appear to do the right thing. John's brother Jimmy eventually gets wrapped up in this case and is arrested and charged as an accessory after the fact because he had admitted cutting out some rug from the club because of, you know, what he thought was red stains, but it was blood. We all know that. So she was rolled up in a rug and they found her. So John does his own investigation and he finds out that Jimmy the Bear Flemmy was also one of the guys at the establishment that night and he was friendly with Sylvester and he knew her pretty well. But the fact of the matter is, guys, if there is a dead body around Jimmy the Bear Flemmy, the odds of him having committed that homicide are probably about 98%. There were a couple other people there, and that would come out later. But as soon as John Moderano found out that Jimmy the Bear Flemmy had been there that night, he had known that Jimmy the Bear had stabbed her to death, and maybe other people helped roll her up in a rug. But Jimmy the Bear Flemmy is that type of animal. Don't forget, Jimmy the Bear Flemmy was partners with Joe Barbosa, Joe the Animal Barbosa. They were killing machines, those two. And there were other people in the bar, and that gave John some pause. So a while after the homicide, Stevie Flemmy, Jimmy the Bear Flemmy's younger brother, comes to John Monterano and says, Bobby Palladino, one of the people that were in the club that night, is talking. He's talking about the murder around town. And the implication was that Bobby Palladino had to go. And Stevie Flemmy stated that Palladino was putting the homicide on Jimmy Moderano himself. So if Palladino talked, the charges could be upgraded from accessory after the fact to murder itself. You know what I mean? And John didn't want that to happen. And this was kind of an emergency situation. They start looking for Palladino all over downtown Boston, all over Boston, really. All the hangouts, and they end up finding him. And John's goal was to get some information, but John was sitting behind him in the basically the hitman seat, and Palladino senses what's coming, you know, the questions about this homicide. He's not an idiot. He knows he's marked for death at that point. Palladino grabs his own firearm and fires a shot at the driver. And at that time, John Monterano, age 24, puts a bullet in the back of Bobby Palladino's head. And they drive around looking, you know, where to dump this guy and all that. And at that time, the section of the city by North Station was kind of deserted in the evenings, in the nighttime. And they dumped him right up against a post for the elevated highway. And there was a picture of it in Time magazine. And you can see the picture as well in Howie Carr's book. 
Don't forget, a lot of this information I'm telling you today comes directly from Howie Carr's book, Hitman. So pick that one up as well. It's an excellent read. But they dump Paladino down there. It's down by the north end, if you're familiar with the area. And the north end is the seat of the doghouse, right? The Angelo's place on Prince Street in the north end. So it was four or five blocks from that location. And Jerry Angelo, the underboss of La Casa Nostra, the next day summons Matarano and his partner and says, what are you doing dumping trash, you know, four blocks from my door? It brings heat on La Casa Nostra. And John Matarano's reply was, Jerry, I simply don't know what you're talking about. And that's about what you'd expect when you're talking about a homicide, right? So Jerry was placated, you know. They basically said, we won't do it again, but we didn't do it the first time. And that was the sad tale of Bobby Palladino. And that whole instance with Margie Sylvester, the licensing board closed Luigi's over that. And that was Andy Monterano's cash cow. And there's not much mention what happens to Andy after that in the book, but man, they had an after-hours club, legitimate restaurant, and now all that cash is gone. And John Monterano is now a murderer, right? He said he struggled with that, and he said later that if he had never met up with Jimmy the Bear Flemmy, he doesn't know if he ever would have went the route of murder. But after Palladino, he felt like he had to protect himself. And that would go on for two other people involved in that Margie Sylvester homicide. The next victim in that was John Jackson, a black guy who was a sometime bartender at Basin Street South and Luigi's. Good guy. Everybody loved him. So after Palladino goes down for the dirt nap, Jackson takes off for a while, but only a few months, comes back to Boston and he's working in some of the touristy spots as a bartender. Coming back to Boston was a fatal mistake for Mr. Jackson. John Matarano and a friend took care of him shortly after he got back, and if he stayed gone, if he stayed out of Boston, it wouldn't have happened. But people think these things blow over, but they don't. You know what I mean? Murders for a lifetime. You know, they're always going to be looking for you. Maybe not for a guy like Palladino, but in most cases, right? So this is around the time, guys, of the Irish gang wars in Charlestown and Somerville. And man, was it a bloodbath. But what most of the other branches of organized crime did is they'd just drop off corpses in Charlestown, Somerville, and Southie and blame it on the Irish gang wars. And that's what the newspapers would do, even though if the guys were, you know, full-blooded Italian. Guys, let me just add one more thing about Maggi Sylvester and the Palladino homicide. Stevie Flemmy came to John Monterano with this information, right? And the thing was that the person who applied for that warrant and showed up at Luigi's was a cop that Stevie Flemmy had on his payroll, right? Totally corrupt cop. But he was on Stevie's payroll, and Stevie was acting like he was doing John Matarano a favor. But the real favor there 
was for Jimmy the Bear Flemmy from his brother Stevie Flemmy. So he tells them about the furs, knowing they're going to discover the body. And now Jimmy could be implicated. So Stevie wanted all those witnesses taken care of, and he started with Bobby Palladino. It was a setup from Stevie, is what I'm trying to tell you. John Martirano would go on, he says, for about 30 years, thinking that Stevie Flemmy did him a favor in that case, when really Stevie was just manipulating him like Machiavelli, right? Some deep-seated motivations to deceive here, and that's how Stevie was. In this whole thing, in this whole book, in the other books I've read from Howie Carr and other authors, Stevie Flemmy is the most diabolical among them. At a certain point, Stevie Flemmy tells them that John Martirano and his friend killed Palladino because of the Sylvester thing. Can you imagine that? He gives you the information that you're going to be raided and Palladino's been talking, right? And you go take care of it. And it was him all along. Stevie Flemmy would use the FBI consistently to get rid of his enemies or people he perceived as his enemies. And sometimes it was just a competitor. He knew he couldn't go up against John Monterano if things were an even split. He needed the FBI to guide him through that. And Stevie was a complete nut a rat. I mean, just from Jump Street, I suppose most of them were. John Monterano wouldn't flip until he found out that his other partners, Stevie and Whitey, were government informants for decades. So guys, with Bobby Palladino gone and John Jackson in the wind, Monterano thinks his problems have went away, you know, and he thanks basically Stevie Flemmy for the tip, which was just horse shit, but Monterano wouldn't figure that out till later. So everything is going as normally does in Boston in those days, but 1966, April 1966, a friend of the gang, and specifically of John Monterano, Billy O'Sullivan, was opening another after-hours place in Roxbury. And John was friends with him. He says, yeah, I'll bring a crew by on opening night, and we'll you know, have a great time and make sure everybody comes. And they do just that. So unbeknownst to John Monterano, the night before, there was a beef in Southie with this guy. He was a boxer turned petty criminal. The guy's name was Tony Varanis, and he was from Southie. And he was a tough guy, but he was a dummy. You know, he had a brain injury in like 58, and he had to quit boxing. But before that, he had an undefeated record. And after you die, everybody thinks, oh, he was going to be champion and all this other stuff. They kind of sanctify you a little bit. But in this case, Varanis runs into John Martirano. And again, the night before, some guys were trying to collect a debt, a loan shocking debt from Tony Varanis. And those guys, they were friends of John Martirano's, got roughed up a little bit, kind of humiliated and run out of the bar. So Varanis comes up the opening night of this after hours club and says, I'm Tony Varanis. You know who I am. 
I sent one of your friends running out of Southie with his tail between his legs. And at that point, Varanus reaches in to grab his gun. And as he does so, John Monterano grabs his first. And Monterano was much taller, fires down into Varanus's head. And as quickly as it started, it was over. But there's murder number two in front of a whole room of people. Again, Miraculously, nobody saw anything, but they took care of the body and all that. But that's how it was in those days. Your life could be over in a split second. This guy Varanus was just a drunk, and that's what happened there. But I believe if he got to that gun, he would have shot Monterano right there. So they end up taking Varanus's body, I believe, into either Monterano's car or his friend's car, who was at the opening night with them, they take the body up to the Blue Hills, uh, kind of a wooded section of Milton, Massachusetts, kind of like a federal park, and they find an area and they dump the body. But then they stop for gas, him and his friend, and the friend notices he's lost his wallet. Can you imagine that? They go back to the dump site, and the wallet was there on top of Varanus's body. So they got it back and, you know, went about their business and the dump site was all set and Varanus was later found by people walking in the Blue Hills. So a couple weeks, guys, after the homicide, John Monterano is giving a friend of his a ride home to the North End. And as you can imagine, this guy is La Costa Nostra. And well, Monterano's driving him home. The made member of Acosta Nostra says to John, he says, hey, we heard you had a problem with Varanus, and we took care of it for you. <laughs> John Monterano says, yeah, oh, really? Thanks so much. And that's how it was. Another guy from South Boston was arrested for the homicide, too. He beat the charges, but, man, that's how it was in those days, right? So the last thing on the Varanus murder, Stevie Flemmy told H. Paul Rico, his handler, that Monterano personally killed Varanus in the bar. Imagine that. But for whatever reason, the FBI doesn't take these murders seriously. I don't know why they wouldn't have tried to pin it on John, right? I don't know if it would have exposed Flemmy. I, I don't think it would have. They had so many informants in those days, including Whitey, and before him, Stevie Flemmy, you know? So they say Jimmy Flemmy, Jimmy the Bear, was also an informant. This guy was a killing machine, Jimmy the Bear Flemmy. And for the FBI to be in business with him is just sick. During this time frame, John Monterano was in the process of actually being set up by Stevie Flemmy. They wanted to kill Larry Bayonne, also known as Larry Zanino. And Zanino was not the underboss, but the consigliere to Jerry Angiulo in the North End. He was big time. And they were planning on killing him and making it look like John Monterano. And his brother, Jimmy, did it. So that would mean a death sentence for them, right? Never mind law enforcement. Just what a snake this Stevie Fleming is, you know? The more I read, the worse he becomes. And it would get much worse. And this is just 66, guys. 
Let me get you up to 2006. So Rico doesn't know this is a setup for Moderano by Stevie Flemmy, but Flemmy starts dropping the breadcrumbs with H. Paul Rico, saying that the Moderanos are having a real problem with Larry Bayoni, Schlazzanino, a couple times here, a couple times there. And pretty soon this was going to happen against Zanino because they thought they could get somebody more favorable in that seat. And that would mean more money for Stevie and the Bear, right? So they were setting up the Monteranos for that. Imagine that. I know I shouldn't be so vexed over it, but my God, it's like Prince Machiavelli. So guys, kind of an interesting aside, the guy who helped John Monterano with the hit on Bobby Palladino was named Tash Brastos. And he was one of Joe the Animal Barbosa's guys. Moderano hung around with Barbosa as well in East Boston. And this guy Brastos, he was a good guy, they say, but when he got to drinking, he would talk about killing Larry Zanino Bayonne because he had killed Brastos's brother. And so he'd get drunk and talk about killing him. The word got back to the North End about it, and they were talking about killing him for quite some time. He'd stop talking about it, and then he'd do it again and again and again. And they knew this guy had to go. And also at this same time, 66, Joe the Animal Barbosa was just totally out of control. At this point, law enforcement was going to try to rein him in because he was killing so many people. And he was being reined in himself. He was not a made member. He was brought into the office in Providence by the man who said, you don't kill anybody anywhere without our say-so. And around the same time, the state and local police had just had enough of Joe the Animal Barbosa. They pull him over. They were always trying to get him with a gun because the gun would violate his parole and send him back for a good bit in the joint. And they do that one night. And Tash Brastos is with Bob Bosa in the car. And they get bail. They make an easy bail, but they keep Joe the animal Bob Bosa. And Bob Bosa tells his crew, go to the Italians and get some money. His crew did have some money, so they go to the North End, and Larry Bayoni, Zanino, whatever you want to call him, says, yeah, yeah, bring all the money to us down at the Nightlight Cafe so we know this isn't any type of scam. And the bail was actually $100,000, but they were like thirty grand short. So they bring the $70,000 to the Nightlight Tash Brastos and another gang member. And the mob, Bayoni especially, says, yeah, we'll do that because we're going to pay Joe the Animal Barbosa back for the work he had done during the Irish gang war because the Italians settled a lot of beefs as well. So Barbosa's crew sets this up. They got 70 Gs and they're ordered by the mob to come into the nightlight and Larry Bayoni and the rest of La Costa Nostra would get that money up to the $100,000 so they could bail Joe the Animal Barbosa out the next day. But that's not how it went. This guy, DePrisco and Tash Brastos, 
go to the nightlight and they never come out. They were almost immediately shot and stabbed to death within the nightlight. And later, an uh, Italian gangster by the name of Ralphie Chong, I believe his real last name was Lamentina. Lamentina was arrested cleaning up blood in the nightlight. It was his place, but he was convicted on accessory after the fact of murder. And he ended up doing like four years over it. But they kill Tash Brastos and DePrisco, and the assassins divvy up the money that those guys had brought in. It was 70 grand. So not a bad payday. But at that point, Joe Barbosa declares he's getting revenge on everybody. And really, he's still in custody. And the only way he could do it was to flip. And that's the real reason Joe the Animal Barbosa flipped. And guys, if you remember, this is where Joe Barbosa put several innocent men on death row with the assistance of the FBI. He stated that Louis Greco, Joe Salvati, Henry Tamiello had been in on the Deegan hit. And it was a complete lie. These were people that Joe the Animal Barbosa had a beef with. And the FBI knew it. It was in their records. That would come out later. But at one point, Joe the Animal Barbosa tracks John Moderano down in Lynn, Massachusetts, where he was staying with a girlfriend and says, listen, I'm not trying to do you any harm. I'm going to settle some of these scores after what they did to me. And Monterano says, I just don't think you should do that. We don't speak to law enforcement, that type of thing. But Barbosa was adamant. And after the phone call, Monterano goes down to the North End and speaks with Jerry and Julo. And Jerry says, you know, that's a nice offer because Monterano had offered to testify about the phone call. And another gangster said he would as well. But nobody believed that a jury would believe Joe the Animal Barbosa, who had like confessed already to like 26 homicides. Nobody thought they'd believe him. And those guys were legitimately innocent. Louis Greco was a war hero and had documentation. He was in Florida at the time of the Deegan hit. None of it mattered. All those guys went down. Some of them went to death row, included Louis Greco, who died an innocent man in the joint. Can you imagine that? And the FBI knew it. Guys, the next homicide or homicides that John Monterano would be involved with were also courtesy of Stevie Fleming. Stevie Fleming one morning was up early, and which was odd for Stevie Fleming because they're all night owls, right? So Stevie goes down to Monterano's bar, Basin Street South, but by this time Monterano had sold it to the Lamentina crew of Italian organized crime, but most people still thought of it as Johnny Monterano's place. And Stevie got a beating there one night because he went down there to collect a Shylocking debt from an Italian mobster, one of the La Martina's kids. He owed Stevie 300 bucks, and the mob didn't like it. These are two made guys. Stevie's not with them. 
And there's a black guy there who was the doorman at Basin Street South by the name of Smith. They called him Smitty. He's a big guy. And so Flemmy calls Martirano and says, I took a beating at your place last night, that big black guy, but he uses the N-word, held my arms while two others tuned him up. Those two others were made men of La Casa Nostra. So they were untouchable. And at this point, Johnny goes down to Basin Street and he's looking for Smitty. And he asked Smitty what happened. And he didn't like the answers he got from Mr. Smith. And he makes a decision right there to kill him. I think the decision kind of had already been made because you're dealing with Stevie Flemmy. Stevie was going to come back and maybe kill all three of them. If he killed those members of La Casa Nostra, there'd be a full-blown war between Winter Hill and La Casa Nostra. There'd be no way around it, you know? They just wouldn't. So Johnny doesn't like what this guy is saying. He feels like he's not respecting him. Matarano would go on to say, and he says it in the book Hitman by Howie Carr, he says, all this guy had to have said was, Jesus, Johnny, I'm sorry. I didn't know Stevie was your friend. They told me to grab his arms and hold them behind his back. And he didn't say that. He was kind of flipping about it. He was kind of like, yeah, this place is with the Lamentinas now. And, you know, basically I was following their orders. And if you got a problem with it, talk to them. So Monterano plays it off like, okay, okay, all's well. Ask him if he's going to a new after-hours card game. Guy says he is. Monterano says, I don't know where it is. Can you meet me on the street? I'm going to go get some cash for the card game, and we'll all go together. And at that point, Monterano does leave. He doesn't get money. He goes to get a gun. Monterano just wasn't having it. He felt totally disrespected by this guy, Smith. and. You know, he would have had to explain to Stevie why he didn't take care of it. But the guy that drove Johnny to this hit ends up driving away and he has to go to Stevie's house. He flags down a taxi cab, takes it to Stevie's girlfriend's house. And that's the last anybody ever heard of Mr. Smith. And it wasn't a real big thing in the newspapers. Because crime in Roxbury at that time was kind of taken off as well. Also, guys, the newspapers were full of stories about Joe Barbosa and the mafia's attempts to get to him. So those a triple homicide didn't really make a ripple in the newspapers. Can you believe that? All right, guys, I think I'm going to leave you there. This is went on a little longer than I normally do. I think we have enough right now for a whole nother episode. So I'm going to leave you there and we're going to do a part three on John Matarano. And it gets worse if that's imaginable. What a bloody, bloody place Boston was at that time. It probably wouldn't come back to being so bloody to the gang activity in Roxbury and Dorchester in the 90s. But this was mayhem. It was just totally out of control. But guys, I'm going to leave you there. We're going to finish up episode three next week. If you need me, get a hold of me at Barry 
at bostonconfidential.net. That's Barry at bostonconfidential.net. Otherwise, I guess I'll see you on the flip side.